Well, hello there, and welcome back to the Straight A Nursing Podcast. I am Nurse Mo, and as always, really excited to be here studying with you today. This is episode 207, and we are talking about DI and SIADH in this episode. Before we do that, I Love taking a quick detour for our listener shout out to our San fam. That is our straight A nursing family. And this one goes out to Whitney, who is a student in my Crucial Concepts Bootcamp program. Here's what Whitney has to say. I cannot say enough good things about Crucial Concepts Bootcamp. I am so, so glad I went ahead and purchased it. I am feeling so much better about my ability to get through nursing school, and I haven't even finished it. Thank you, Nurse Mo, for your amazing program. Whitney, thank you so much for taking the time to submit that feedback about Bootcamp and for Anyone listening, boot camp, if you're listening right now in real time, it is on sale for a few more days. So go and check that out. It does go on sale multiple times per year, and it's always available. So I will put the link to that in the episode notes. So again, today's topic is DI and SIADH. So many concepts that you learn in nursing school are are these concepts that are related to one another, but different enough that it can often get a little bit confusing, maybe a little bit convoluted about all the key elements, because you will need to know how to differentiate them for your exams. And a great example of this is the condition diabetes insipidus, DI, and syndrome of inappropriate antidiuretic hormone, which is SIADH. These two conditions are essentially kind of opposites of one another. So again, really important that you understand what each one is because test questions are definitely going to be asking you about this. So before we kind of get into the weeds on that, I do want to talk very briefly about antidiuretic hormone. So this is the key hormone that is involved in these conditions. You'll also see it referred to as ADH and vasopressin. So the role of ADH is to maintain blood pressure, and it does this by causing the body to hold onto water to maintain its fluid balance. So antidiuretic, it's going to do the opposite of diuresing. And as you know, diuresing means losing water. So we're going to do the opposite of that, which is hold on to water. ADH is produced in the hypothalamus and released by the pituitary in response to a variety of factors. The key factors are decreases in blood volume and blood pressure, which is sensed by baroreceptors, and increased serum osmolality which is sensed by osmoreceptors. When antidiuretic hormone, or ADH, levels are elevated, this causes the body to hold on to fluid. There's essentially more of that antidiuretic action happening. And when the levels of ADH are too low or deficient, the body is going to lose more water than it should. Okay, you got that? Very good. Now let's talk a little bit about diabetes insipidus. 
We also call this DI because in the medical field, we love shortening things. So DI results from a deficiency of this antidiuretic hormone. Without the appropriate levels of ADH, the body is going to excrete or lose more fluid than is being reabsorbed. This leads to a net loss of total body water. Okay, so that's key. In DI, we are losing water. Got that? Okay, let's talk about the four types of diabetes insipidus. There's central diabetes insipidus, nephrogenic diabetes insipidus, primary diabetes insipidus, and gestational. So central diabetes insipidus also is sometimes referred to as neurogenic. So central DI and neurogenic DI are referring to the same thing. And this is the most common type of diabetes insipidus. In this type, there are disruptions in ADH synthesis, ADH transportation, or ADH release. And this is often caused by things like brain tumors, head injuries, neurosurgery, or a central nervous system infection. And then we have nephrogenic diabetes insipidus. And in this condition, the kidneys are not responding to ADH appropriately. So it's nephrogenic. Nephro means kidney. Common causes are medications like lithium. It can be due to hypercalcemia and acute or chronic renal disease. And then primary diabetes insipidus also has a secondary name called dipsogenic diabetes insipidus. And this condition occurs with excess water intake when the individual's thirst mechanism is malfunctioning. So this can be a consequence of a psychological disorder or because of damage to the hypothalamus or the pituitary. And then gestational diabetes insipidus, this occurs when enzymes produced in the placenta interfere with the kidney's ability to properly process the ADH. It is usually transient and self-corrects once the pregnancy has ended. So those four types, again, central or neurogenic, nephrogenic, involving the kidneys, primary or dipsogenic, and gestational. So regardless of the type of diabetes insipidus that is present, that lack of ADH or inability to respond to ADH appropriately means the kidneys are unable to reabsorb fluid as they should, and this causes large quantities of diluted urine to be voided. So now let's go over S-I-A-D-H, a quick overview there. So syndrome of inappropriate antidiuretic hormone is a condition in which there is too much ADH. The end result is the body is going to hold on to far more fluid than it should. S-I-A-D-H occurs due to a variety of factors as well. A very common cause is small cell carcinoma a type of lung cancer. It can also be related to central nervous system disorders such as infection, injury, systemic lupus erythematosus, and Guillain-Barre. Additionally, SIADH occurs with administration of certain medications. 
These include SSRIs, selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, TCAs, tricyclic antidepressants, anesthesia, thiazide diuretics, and chemotherapy. Lastly, SIADH can be related to other conditions such as adrenal insufficiency, COPD, hypothyroidism, HIV, lung infections, and even positive pressure ventilation. So now that you have a little background on both of these conditions, I want to go through the straight A nursing latte method, but do it in a compare and contrast kind of way. When we have conditions like this that are essentially opposites of one another, it's really helpful to review them together because you really get that contrast and comparison. Now, the first letter in the latte method is L, and that stands for how does the patient look? Basically, what are you noticing about the patient? What are their signs and symptoms? So with diabetes insipidus, we have high urine output, also known by polyuria, and that urine is very dilute. The patient is also likely to have polydipsia, which is increased thirst, and this is typically a result of those fluid losses the body's trying to keep up. They will show signs of dehydration, so that could be low blood pressure, tachycardia, and dry mucous membranes. And then CNS disturbances could be related to hypernatremia. You may see confusion, decreased level of consciousness, and irritability. So again, with DI, the key things to know are that you're going to have large amounts of dilute urine and hypernatremia. On the other side is SIADH. In this condition, the patients will have low urine output and the urine will be concentrated so it'll be dark in color. They could have edema because of that fluid retention and increased body weight. They may even have pulmonary edema with that shortness of breath because their water is getting into the lungs essentially and they could be complaining of fatigue. And they will also have CNS disturbances, but these are due to hyponatremia. You may see things like vomiting, nausea, muscle cramps, twitching, even respiratory depression. They could be very lethargic, very confused, even have seizures and go into a coma. So again, with SIADH, the key things are low urine output, putting out very small amounts of dark urine, with edema, increased body weight, and hyponatremia. So the next letter in the latte method is A, how do you assess the patient? So for both conditions, you are going to be monitoring their eyes and nose intake and output measuring their weight, especially for the patient who's getting fluid volume overloaded, always assessing level of consciousness, and for the presence of any other neurological symptoms like headache, nausea and vomiting, irritability and confusion. Now for diabetes insipidus specifically, get that full set of vital signs, paying very careful attention to hemodynamics. 
this patient is likely to be tachycardic and hypotensive because they're losing volume. For SIADH, I also want you to get a full set of vital signs. Pay careful attention to blood pressure because it could be elevated. It could be significantly elevated. And then watching respiratory rate and O2 saturation because of the risk for pulmonary edema. I want you to monitor this patient for fluid overload, listen to their lungs, and observe their work of breathing. Another quick assessment is simply to look at the urine itself. In DI, again, it's going to be dilute, so that urine will be almost clear, if not completely clear. Large amounts of dilute urine. And then in SIADH, you'll notice the patient's urine output has dropped off and that urine is dark and concentrated. So the next letter in the latte method is T, and it stands for tests. What tests are going to be ordered for patients with these conditions? For both DI and SIADH, you will be monitoring urine-specific gravity, urine osmolality, serum sodium, and serum osmolality. The patient may also receive testing to determine if the cause of the disorder is related to something else, such as small cell carcinoma in the case of SIADH, or because of something like renal insufficiency or a neurological injury. Now, normal reference ranges can vary widely for the urine-specific gravity, the osmolality, and all of that. So always go by what your facility or your school's reference ranges are. But I'm going to tell you some basic ranges here to give you an idea. So urine-specific gravity, the normal range is 1.010 to 1.020. You could see a wider range as considered normal. I have also seen 1.005 to 1.030. Urine osmolality will be about 300 to 800 milliosmoles per kilogram, but this one does vary pretty widely. So again, go by what your school or your hospital says is the normal range. Serum sodium is pretty universally considered normal at 135 to 145 milliequivalents per liter. And then we have serum osmolality, which is generally considered normal in a range of 275 to 295 milliosmoles per kilogram. Again, urine-specific gravity, 1.010 to 1.020 You may see a wider range, more like 1.005 to 1.030. Urine osmolality, 300 to 800, kind of a general range, but this one could vary a lot. Serum sodium, 135 to 145. And then serum osmolality, 275 to 295. It can be tough to transition from a student to a professional nurse. I remember when I started out as a new grad in the ICU, talk about feeling 
like a total imposter. I felt like I had no idea what I was doing. Did I really even belong here? And to say that my anxiety was through the roof was an understatement. But then I started with my nurse residency program and it really made all the difference. And that's why I want to tell you about the nurse residency program with HCA Healthcare. Now, this program supports newly graduating nursing students at those early stages of their careers. HCA Healthcare's year-long nurse residency program helps first-year nurses transition from the classroom to working in the field with confidence, develop critical thinking skills through hands-on clinical experience, and get support from a community of caring, experienced nurses and fellow nurse residents. Plus, nursing residents get access to a range of opportunities to learn from specialists in various areas like the ER, ICU, and surgical services. Not only that, HCA Healthcare's nurse residency program comes with other great benefits like tuition reimbursement and student loan assistance, 401k matching, clinical instruction by subject matter experts, continued support from mentors, and more. Build the foundation for your career at any of HCA Healthcare's 184 hospitals across 19 states. Students who are preparing to graduate and recent grads are eligible to apply to the nurse residency program at HCA Healthcare. Learn more today at careers.hcahealthcare.com slash residency. Again, that's careers.hcahealthcare.com slash residency. HCA Healthcare, an equal opportunity employer. So let's look at DI and SIADH and what the results would be in each condition. So looking at the urine-specific gravity. In diabetes insipidus, it will be low because the urine is dilute. In SIADH, it will be high because the urine is concentrated. The urine osmolality in DI will be low because the urine is dilute. In SIADH, it will be high because the urine is concentrated. The serum sodium in DI is going to be high. The patient has hypernatremia. In SIADH, the serum sodium will be low. The patient has hyponatremia. The serum osmolality in DI is high. The patient is dehydrated. Their serum is concentrated. In SIADH, the serum osmolality is low. The patient is fluid overloaded. The fluids in their body are dilute. There will be other testing, especially if the physician is trying to determine the underlying or associated cause. So to determine if the cause of the DI is neurogenic versus nephrogenic, the patient may undergo something called a water deprivation test. In this test, the patient's weight is measured along with urine osmolality, specific gravity, and volume. The patient is then deprived of water for 8 to 12 hours and then given desmopressin. Patients with neurogenic diabetes insipidus will show an increase in the urine osmolality and a decrease in urine output. 
if the cause of the DI is nephrogenic in nature, there will be no change in urine output or urine osmolality. Because again, in nephrogenic diabetes insipidus, it's not because there's not enough ADH. It's because the kidneys aren't responding appropriately to it. And desmopressin is that synthetic ADH, that synthetic vasopressin that we give patients who have neurogenic DI. Because by giving them more ADH, essentially, we correct the problem. The urine output decreases, the urine osmolality increases, and the serum osmolality will decrease as the patient's dehydration resolves and they get to normal fluid balance. And then if the patient has SIADH or is suspected of having SIADH, additional tests could be an ADH level. And then again, the MD may do a variety of other tests to determine if there is another contributing factor, such as, for example, small cell carcinoma or some kind of an infection. And then our next letter in the latte method is another T, and this one stands for treatments. How are these conditions treated? So when we look at diabetes insipidus, the treatment could vary based on whatever that underlying causes and that type of DI. The main goals are to maintain fluid and electrolyte balance. So for central or neurogenic diabetes insipidus, the patient will receive most likely fluid replacement to achieve euvolemia or normal fluid balance. And they will do that along with hormone therapy in the form of DDAVP, which is essentially exogenous ADH. I mentioned it earlier. It's called desmopressin. And the goal of this therapy is for the body to have more ADH so that the patient retains water and these fluid losses cease. DDAVP or desmopressin can be given IV, PO, sub-Q, or as a nasal spray. In cases of nephrogenic diabetes insipidus, additional ADH is not going to help. So we're not giving this patient desmopressin because the kidneys are not responding appropriately to antidiuretic hormone. Instead, we try to identify the offending agent, such as, is it lithium toxicity? Or do they have some kind of chronic kidney disease? We can also give thiazide diuretics that can help reduce flow to the more ADH-sensitive distal nephrons of the kidneys. And then if that doesn't work, then the MD may order endomethacin to increase the kidney's responsiveness to ADH. Patients with nephrogenic DI will likely be instructed to follow a low-salt diet. And then gestational DI is usually treated with desmopressin, and then again, once the pregnancy has ended, that condition resolves itself. With primary or dipsogenic DI, remember this is the one where the individual is taking in too much water, The treatment is to decrease that water intake and address any underlying mental illness that could be contributing. It could also be because of a tumor, and if that were the case, that would be addressed. If the cause, again, is like a CNS infection, a tumor, a brain injury, we are treating that underlying cause. And then looking at treatments for SIADH, 
These treatments are going to focus on addressing the underlying cause while promoting fluid and electrolyte balance. So, for example, again, if the tumor is what is causing the SIADH, then the patient will most likely be getting removal of that tumor or radiation or chemotherapy or something to shrink that tumor. If the SIADH is caused by a medication such as a thiazide diuretic, the patient's prescription may be changed. Now, mild cases of SIADH without neurological compromise could be treated a little bit more conservatively. And we're looking at maybe a serum sodium that's not below like 125 or so. Again, this can vary widely. Go by your facility, of course. Go by your MD orders, all of that. But mild cases that do not have neurological compromise The treatment may likely just be fluid restriction. A common fluid restriction is less than 800 mils per day. The patient could also be prescribed salt tablets or simply instructed to increase sodium intake through their diet. Again, it depends on how severe the hyponatremia is and whether or not they have neurological compromise. If these measures do not produce the desired result, then the patient may get a vasopressor receptor antagonist such as conivaptin. Conivaptin causes diuresis without affecting sodium or potassium excretion. The result is the patient removes or they urinate out that excess fluid, but their sodium levels normalize. Patients taking conivaptin will have increased thirst, and it can be a little bit uncomfortable or a lot uncomfortable. They could get prescribed a medication to decrease that thirst sensation, such as carbamazepine, otherwise known as Tegretol. Now, what if the patient has a more severe case or they have some neurological compromise? How would the treatment be aimed then? Well, most likely it's going to be aimed at slowly increasing the serum sodium level. And a lot of times what we use for that is a hypertonic saline, which is a 3% sodium chloride. And this could be used by itself or in conjunction with a vasopressin receptor antagonist. Please note that hypertonic saline is a high, high alert medication, okay? Hypertonic saline, which is 3% sodium chloride. There are other hypertonic salines. It doesn't have to be as high as 3% to be considered hypertonic. Anytime your sodium chloride is above 0.9%, it is considered hypertonic. But the most common one we use is 3%, and it is a high alert medication. It absolutely must be given slowly at a controlled rate to avoid cerebral osmotic demyelination, which is locked-in syndrome. So the general rule of thumb is to infuse hypertonic saline at a rate not to exceed 30 mils per hour. This can vary based on how hypertonic your saline is, okay? I'm talking about 3% sodium chloride here, and I'm talking about a general guideline. Always, always, always defer to your pharmacy, your facility, your MD, your orders. And if you're ever in doubt, ever, ever in doubt, double check. Double check the orders, double check your drug guide, double check with your physician, and double check with your pharmacy. 
triple, quadruple, and million times check, okay? Because locked-in syndrome, cerebral osmotic demyelination is a very real risk and very, very severe. Now, the general recommended rate of sodium correction is to increase that sodium level, that serum sodium, by less than 8 milliequivalents per liter in a 24-hour period. Again, this will be dictated by the physician who's writing the order. So always defer to that. And then if you ever question the order, you absolutely must speak up. In cases of very severe hyponatremia with very significant symptoms, such as seizure or coma, the MD may choose to correct the sodium level a little more quickly at a rate of four to six milliequivalents per liter in the first two to four hours. But again, always, always double-checking and confirming. Always follow the MD specifications and ensure that routine lab testing is always done on time. This is generally going to be a serum sodium and a serum osmolality level that is drawn every four to six hours, maybe more often if the patient is being corrected a little more quickly. This can definitely vary based on the patient's condition and the MD orders. The takeaway here is that you are giving hypertonic saline slowly at a controlled rate. You would never free flow this in. This is going in over a pump with a controlled rate of flow, probably also using some kind of controlled mechanism like a volutrol, which I mention in my episode about safe IV medication administration, and that you are correcting the sodium at a very controlled rate as well. And with that, assessing those sodium levels, serum sodium and serum osmolality on a routine basis being very careful and very exact about the timing of those lab draws. The patient may also get a loop diuretic for SIADH. Verosamide may be used to promote diuresis with or without concurrent replacement of sodium with some kind of saline or hypertonic saline. It just depends on the patient. So you may see a loop diuretic given by itself or with some hypertonic saline. Urea may also be utilized to promote diuresis, though this is not as commonly used as other modalities. This medication will cause the patient to excrete water without excreting or losing sodium. And then lithium and demaclocycline, though not widely used, these two medications diminish that collecting tubule cells response to ADH, so they may be given to increase water excretion. Specific nursing interventions for a patient with DI or SIADH are going to center on patient safety and preventing complications. Because with hyper and hyponatremia, the central nervous system can get involved. The patient may have neurological symptoms. Initiate seizure precautions anytime sodium levels are abnormal or your patient's neurological status is unpredictable. And then the final letter in the latte method is E, how do you educate the patient or the family? So education for both conditions involves teaching about the importance of taking daily weights, how to recognize signs of fluid imbalance, and if the cause of the disorder is related to an underlying condition, teaching should focus on how that condition is being addressed. For example, is the patient getting surgery? Is the patient getting treatment for an infection or changing their medication regimen? 
So looking specifically at DI, things you would want to include in your teaching would be any dietary restrictions, such as following a low sodium or a protein-restricted diet, which may be necessary for nephrogenic DI. You want to teach the patient to stay hydrated by drinking fluids. They should have water with them at all times. They should wear a medic alert bracelet as diabetes insipidus can affect the patient long term. So this could be just a chronic condition that they live with and cause serious complications that require prompt treatment. You also want to teach the patient and the family the signs of hypernatremia, which could be increased thirst. They could have twitching or seizures, confusion, irritability, muscle weakness, lethargy, and coma. And then just teaching the general signs of dehydration. Again, increased thirst, low-grade fever could be present, flushing, poor skin turgor, and a rapid pulse. For SIADH, one of the big teaching things you'll be doing is managing fluid restriction. Things patients can do to manage fluid restriction could be having ice chips, which is just a way to decrease that feeling of thirst and getting some relief for dry mouth. Sucking on hard candies and chewing sugarless gum can be helpful, again, for decreasing that thirst feeling. And then teaching the patient or the family the signs and symptoms of hyponatremia and when they need to call the MD or seek emergency care. These could be things like decreased level of consciousness, lethargy, They could even have seizure, be unresponsive, and have nausea and vomiting. So I hope that helps you understand diabetes insipidus and SIADH. Something I always advise students to do when they're studying these conditions that are, you know, the same but different or polar opposites is to simply make a table and put all the components on the table so you can really visualize and see how they differ from one to the other. So give that a try and let me know if that helps you. And if you're a new nursing student and you're listening to this in real time, my Crucial Concepts Bootcamp is on sale right now for a few more days. And if you're listening to this whenever, it is still available. Go and check. It might be on sale right now. It just depends on when you're listening. I'll put the link to that in the episode notes. And then I will see you back here next week where we are going to be talking about mannitol, which is a really interesting medication. You know, it kind of ties in with this talk we're having today about sodium levels and diuresis. So that's a little bit of a hint about mannitol. So I will see you back here for that next week. Bye for now. This podcast is brought to you by Straight A Nursing.